Greetings, reader fans. Welcome to episode 10 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, where we try to be Morpheus to your Neo and plug you into the best of the machine mainframe. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and on this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. Joining me is returning space adventurer, fresh from interstellar pastures, John Richardson of Starfleet Comms. Hi! Where you been? I've been to Sitges, which is 35 kilometres southwest of Barcelona, approximately. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it was lovely. Six days of sitting on the beach. I didn't get harpooned or mistaken for a whale, so that was good. <laughs> <laughs> it was me thinking it was something like Ricer, and you were having a chat with Picard. Good Riker, and... <laughs> yeah. No, 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 just uh, boring old Barcelona, but uh, oh, it, was, it was lovely. It was really nice, well recommended. And I guess quite a bit hotter than here. Oh uh, yeah, it was um a comfortable hot though. It was you know, it was around about twenty six to twenty eight to twenty nine ish, that sort of area. So it was good. Yeah. It's nice. And you kinda get used to it, don't you? You kinda we did Rome a couple of years ago mm. and we did Malta a few years before that and and I always felt that I was suffering in the heat here and then I'd go out to another country that's like five, ten degrees hotter. And actually after a day or two, I was all right. Yeah, it's a, you know, and then you get it's all a bit meh at the time, isn't it? You get so used yeah. to it and uh and then you come back <laughs> and actually, you know <laughs> I came back to torrential rain and wind. <laughs> oh no, that's no good. But it was good fun. It was lovely, yes. For me at the moment it is marking season, as <laughs> I may have mentioned before. I am pretty much snowed under as things go, but uh, there are one or two things that I've been up to. Went up to York on Monday to present a paper at an academic conference. Done one or two other things. Been at a very recent little consultancy about looking at the new draft for the creative writing A-level that's run by the AQA exam board in the UK, which is essentially a very, very positive thing to try and get Mm. students to learn how to do imaginative writing at A-level stage, which... I don't know about you, John, but um, if I'd had that opportunity when I was a kid, mm. oh, I'd have loved it. I would have loved it too, but uh, unfortunately, I think I was thrown down the mines at an early age, and uh, that was it. <laughs> well, for me, it was English literature or nothing, mm. and when they talked about having an English language A-level at the time, people were sort of frowning about that, so all you had if you were going to do English was English literature. Mm. All I wanted to do was write stories and and people just said to me no 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 you have to write about other people who have written stories and (laughs) I really didn't like that very much at all yeah so it's quite a nice thing to be part of a process that is trying to well it's 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 opening everything up rather than trying to stifle creativity isn't it yeah you'd hope so I mean Mm. we're you know obviously there are hurdles to overcome bridges to cross and everything else Mm -hmm. But you'd hope so. People being imaginative is kind of one of the the lifeblood things of of this country and and certainly of of everything. I mean, if we didn't have stories, if we didn't have stuff, then we wouldn't have have very much to talk about anyway. So the key thing for me was looking at the fact that as a kid, I was incredibly imaginative and I was trying to write things. And then in a certain period in that teenage gap, you're not encouraged to. And actually, it needs to be there so that then you could go on when you do a degree or something. So you continuously encourage rather than having it knocked out of you, which I think is such a shame. At the very beginning as well. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that, you know, that this will sort itself out and we'll get ourselves a nice, awesome new creative writing A-level program to go through after 2017. The existing program continues until 2017 anyway. So, oh, you know, so 
All good. Yeah, that's what I've been up to, writing a few other bits and pieces. To update everyone from last week, I mentioned on last week's show where I was in the tour queue with my novella. I've checked it earlier today, but let's let's do a check right now, just to let you know where we've got to. I expect it's the same place. Yes, yes, it's the same place. Okay, so I'm still queue position 81. <laughs> so and now the average response time is 15 days out of 90. So um, creeping up. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I think that's going to be a while. <laughs> well, we're moving in the right direction, I guess. I was going to talk a little bit more in our news section today about publishing. John, you don't know a lot about this. I know you and I have talked about this a little bit, and you kind of said to me when I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. You said, hmm, you know, I'd be really interested to know about that. So I'm going to let you interrogate me. So okay. go on, ask away. Right, okay. So basically you've got the... You're obviously going to have do's and don'ts about things, and you've obviously got the big publishers and the little publishers, and then you've got self-publishing. Now then, on one of or a couple of the book reviews I've been doing, they've been pretty much self-published. So these authors have decided to do their project, their pet book, and put it out there for the world to see by themselves. Some have used Kindle publishing, Kindle Direct Publishing, I think it is. And there's a thing called Create Space as well, where it creates an actual physical book for them as well. So if our audience are people who are interested in reading books, and there's probably quite a few people who have got that little novel in their minds who want to try and write something as well, what do you suggest as the way forward for that? Sure. So, okay, now I'll caveat this a little bit. I'm going to talk about this based on my experience, not necessarily based on my ability, because at this stage, I have submitted to all raft and manner of publishers from the top of the spectrum down to the bottom with different results across each. Mm. So I can't claim to be sitting here as someone who's published something from Penguin Books or anything else. But I do know some publishers and I do know some agents and I do know some other people. The self-publishing route, it's a good opportunity for people who feel confident about what they've got and have clear expectations about what will happen with it. So if you are looking to publish a book and you just want to make sure that all your friends or all your family have an opportunity to read your book, whether via ebook or via you know a small print run, then self-publishing is great. And similarly, if you think that you know the, the sort of social media market, you have an idea of the price point, you, you have a strategy in terms of marketing yourself, then it might well be that your book is self-published, but then starts to take off and really take some sales. But they are a few. You have to bear in mind the signal to noise ratio in self-publication is, you know, it's quite high mm -hmm. in that regard, if you see what I mean. Yep. However, the difference is that if you produce the thing, then you're in control of much more of the revenue that comes back out of it. So if you go to Amazon, for example, you can put a book up on Amazon Kindle and you will achieve about 65%, 70% of the market price will come to you as an author. Or you can go at the lower rate. There is a price point where you can go in the bargain basement bin and effectively be a 70p novel or a 90p novel. And if you go at that really low rate of money for what you've put up, then you go down to a 35% royalty return. Amazon takes about 70%, you know, 65, 70% instead. So that's your benchmark through using Amazon. And Amazon is the biggest market in that regard. Yeah. There are other places Smashwords is the sort of one of the oldest ebook areas that you can go to. And Smashwords is very good for the people that kind of know their writing. They kind of go there and, you know, and that's very good. The other e-readers are, are very good. 
But you do have to check the small print because certainly in the past, Amazon's direct publishing scheme via Kindle has stated that if it's on the KDP Select scheme, it can't be in other places. Now, some people have ignored that. And the KDP Select scheme lets people who are Amazon Prime customers borrow your book. And I say borrow with quote marks. Mm -hmm. So they can borrow your book and read it. And then after a period of time, it deletes off of their reader and they get it for free. Amazon effectively pays that revenue. So you get a little bit more promotion, you know, if you're in the KDP scheme. But the problem is that you're then tied in exclusively to that one distributor. Yeah. So you've got to think about that. Now, in terms of physical copies, there are a lot of print-on-demand services now. You mentioned CreateSpace. There is also Feed or Read. There are one or two others. I think Blurb does it. One that I've used in the past, Lulu. I've done a lot of my dad's books. He writes children's stories about a talking pig. A lot of those have been published using Lulu. So, you know, there is an opportunity there. And always, the more you order, the lower the prices per copy. Mm -hmm. So... But you do need to make sure your copy is sound in that regard. And one of the big things, and I, you know, sort of when I started talking about self-publishing here, I did say, do make sure you know what you're attempting to achieve. Because bear in mind, if you don't have a professional editor, it will have errors in it. It doesn't matter how good you are. It will have errors in it. There will be proofing issues. There will be things. And once you've published it and you look back on it, you will still look back and you'll kind of go, ah, oh, could have done that. Could have changed that. Could have done that. Yeah. That that happens to all of us, but if it's a spelling mistake, you kind of feel a bit worse. Yeah. So it is worth getting somebody on board who can read it and give you a, a bit of a once-over. Ebook is actually, if you were looking at a staged release, if you went with ebook physical copy, then at ebook, you know you can still revise it. The advantage on Kindle is that your readers can re-download. Effectively, if you update it, then Amazon offers them the opportunity to re-download their copy. So it, you know, it updates and the spelling yeah. mistakes are gone or the, you know, whatever correction is done. So that's quite a nice thing. Then we move into publishers and agents. Okay, so if you get an agent, then remember that that agent is going to take a cut of whatever your work is sold for. Now, that agent will try and sell your work. And that agent, hopefully, will like your work. It's a bit of a relationship. You don't get an agent if they kind of go, oh, you're all right. You know, you get an agent if they actually think, one, that your work's good, and two, that they can sell it. Yes, there's got to be a passion there, hasn't there? Yeah, and I, I think sometimes the two things can get conflated. Mm. I've been that person who's submitted to people and somebody's come back and gone, yeah, I love it. And you kind of go, wow, he loves it, that guy. Mm. And you kind of got to get past that because actually once it gets to a certain stage, it is often it's about they've seen that this piece will achieve an audience. Not that necessarily they've seen this piece and gone, it's the best written piece I've ever read. That sort of confidence validation. I'm not trying to make anybody think that when they get a nice email from somebody saying, yes, and I'm going to take your story. They should not be incredibly sort of happy about it. They should. They should. It's great, mm. you know. But you've also got to have a sober head and think about what their agenda is for wanting to get on board your story. Yeah. If you see what I mean. Yeah. So that agent then takes your work. That agent will then speak to publishers. And you'll find that there are a lot of publishers who don't accept unsolicited submissions. The point is, is that they do have agents who they deal with all the time. If you are signed up with an agent who they deal with, that could be a solicited submission because that's someone that they've worked with before. So that's someone who they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If so-and-so thinks it's good, then it's got to be good. Yeah. 
So actually that can get you through some doors that are closed, which I think is important to recognize. But you have signed away some percentages if you've done that because the agent is going to take them. So you've got to, well, if you're if you're going to agree to have an agent, you need to know that that agent is actually going to be worth what you've signed away. I'm not saying that's wrong, you know. No, I know. Don't have an agent, but just be savvy. With an agent, you're probably hoping to get in with a big publisher. With a small publisher, with a small press or an independent press, actually, they are more likely to be dealing directly with the author. Bear in mind, some small presses are founded by writers who don't want to be seen as self-publishing. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with this. You know, they will look at the fact that they've got six books, five books, whatever, and they will say, you know what, actually, you know, I could publish these. So they'll form their own company and become a small press. Now, as was mentioned to me at a, a talk at EasterCon when Marcus Gibbs was, was talking, Marcus Gibbs is one of the submissions editors at Galantz. He was saying publishers don't make a lot of money. The average profit margin in the publishing industry is about 10%. It's not 30%, which you would probably get in other industries. The key with a small press is a small press, because of the ebook revolution, the small press has become much more of a viable commodity because, you know, the cost overhead is lower for ebooks, obviously. Mm. Similarly, there is a niche market, particularly in short stories, where it's not as viable for a big publisher to publish short story collections, whereas for a small press, it's much more viable. And it's a much easier way for them to attract big names. So you might see a well-known author who has a good series publishing with a big publisher, publishing their, you know, their series of novels with a big publisher. And then you'll see a small independent press publishing a collection of their shorts. By having that name, the small independent press gets a little bit of traction recognition for the rest of its catalogue. And the author who's sitting in the middle ground still gets their work out. If you see what I'm I saying. Do, yeah. So, yeah, a... so yeah, so that's that's kind of the niche that they operate in. So you'll find some great works in the indie press, you know, and in the in the small presses. Um, some really, really great works. And certainly you can look at, you know, the negotiation that you have between a, a writer and a publisher at that level. You already know that you're signing away certain things when you sign any contract, but you're in a much more connected relationship. So it obviously has to be honest. It also, you both want to be pulling in the same direction in relation to the books. So that connection of passion about writing can be a bit more clear cut, a little bit more vivid when you're sort of involved with someone at that level. And it's a great opportunity. And I would suggest that most aspiring writers should really be aiming at the small presses Mm. because not everyone's going to get published by HarperCollins. And that isn't a reflection of quality. Sometimes that can be a reflection of whether they are writing the right thing to be sold, they are hitting the right opportunity, i.e. their face fits, yeah, the theme fits. Uh, we were talking last week about Andy Weir's The Martian and the, the fact that it's being adapted by Ridley Scott for the screen. With all the NASA footage that's coming out about Mars over the last two or three years, four or five years, it was a no-brainer to see a science fiction novel about a guy on Mars. Mm. It was just depending on who wrote it. Yeah. I'm sure it's a great book. The Martian is on my to-read list. But the point is, is the publisher saw the opportunity and it was a great book. Yeah. If you see uh, what I'm absolutely, saying. yeah. Strike whilst the iron's hot type of thing. And I think, you know, it's hard as well. It's hard to be reactive. You know, you really, as a writer, it's very difficult to be reactive. You can't anticipate those themes very easily because often you're writing 100,000 words. 
And so how long it takes you to write 100,000 words could be how long the fashion for disaster movies or the interest in Pluto, it could be that disappears, Mm, if you see what I mean. So you've got to kind of be a bit savvy in that regard and think about what you're doing. But that kind of gives you a bit of an idea of the differences between big and, and little press. Typically, the guys who are in little publishers, there are freelance copy editors, freelance editors who are roving around doing work for the bigs, work for the littles, work for self-publishers as well. And often the editing is just as good. So, you know, you shouldn't worry too much about that. Often some of the people in those presses are then also working with, with larger publishers as well. So check them out. I would always say it's the best thing to do. Find out what they're up to. If you read down a list, and I've dealt with quite a few small presses now, if you read down a list of all their authors and you don't recognize any names, or if most of them have only got one book, then there might be something wrong. Mm. If you see that there are two or three that, you know, maybe maybe they've got one person on their books and he's done six books, that suggests that maybe he might be the person who's actually running, it. running the press. Yeah which is not a bad thing. You just need to be aware of it and decide how you fit in with that. And, you know, read the contract in detail. Be honest and open and upfront about what your your concerns are. If they can't answer them or they don't answer them directly, then you know that something's up. So it is the same with everything. And I'm not trying to be alarmist in that. Yeah, you've just got to sort of uh, cover your back, as it were. And if in doubt, seek independent legal advice where it comes down to it, I guess. Yeah, I would suggest so. I mean, just the thing is, is that it can be easy to take your eye off the ball when someone tells you they like your writing. Mm. And that can make you maybe a little bit blind to what's written in the detail. Everyone's pulling on your side until they're not pulling on your side. (laughs) So if you're a big publisher and they've got 10 writers and one of them is selling really well and you're not selling really well, who are they going to pay more attention to? Who are they going to spend more time with? An evening with Joe Bloggs. Who is going to get more of that kind of attraction? The person who's selling more. And you kind of have to recognize that the people you're dealing with, yeah, they'll be your friends, but at the same time, they're dealing with you in business. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you have to be cold-headed about that as well because you are the product. And that's a hard thing to adjust to. Mm. That recognition of I'm special is a bit different to actually I'm the product. Yeah. So yeah, I'm hoping that was vaguely clear. <laughs> it was, yes. It was, it was very good. Thank you. It certainly gave a background into the whole thing and uh, opened my eyes to the role of little publishers, I guess, and clarified some bits about self-publishing. Good. Yeah, you'll see ebooks on Amazon and elsewhere. You'll see that there are an awful lot of names of publishers that you probably don't recognize. It's as easy as going to Kindle and putting a name in the box. Mm. It doesn't have to be a company registered at a company's house. You can just put a name in the box. So, you know, this world of who it's published by sometimes isn't as clear cut as it as it may appear. And even with the big ones, most of them are imprints. So most of the names that you know are not actually the company that, that owns them. Last year, didn't we, we started to hear Hatchet as a name in books. And I was at the time when I, because Hatchet got into a dispute with Amazon. And at the time I was like, who are Hatchet? And it turns out they own most of the book names that you know. And most of the the stuff that you see on the the cover on the back, Mm. most of them are owned by Hatchet. So they're imprint groups or things like Penguin. Penguin is owned and part of Random House. Del Rey, which you've you've perhaps seen before, is part of Penguin. You know, they're all like little pyramids. and, And essentially these little imprints, what they've done is 
collected together, like you know some of the new presses, the, the small independent presses we've got now, they've collected together a good body of work and attracted attention through their sales and seem to have been quite profitable as an aggressive little company and then got gobbled up by the bigs. Yeah. You still use the name. So it's an interesting continual dynamic in publishing, which I think is is something you have to be prepared for. And you also have to be prepared for the fact that you're going to get turned down a lot. Okay, moving on from publishing, let's have a little bit of a chat about today's release details about Star Wars. Oh, yes. Now, John, uh, you found this particular article very interesting, I know. What have we found out? Well, did you know that Han Solo, that lovable rogue <laughs> from Star Wars, is a bit of a philanderer? In the new in-canon Star Wars comic done by Marvel, and I guess it's under the Disney mandate now, he's married! <laughs> and what we're saying is he's not married to Princess Leia. That's right. Yeah, so this is an article coming out of io9, who uh, at the moment it appears that anything random, scattershot and uh, new seems to come emerging from articles on io9. They have discussed how the new in-canon comic, and this is in-canon for the new movies comic, which is sort of set between New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, isn't it? There is a feature of Sana Solo, his wife. I know, we do have quite an interesting new take, don't we? We, we, um, we do, and that's that's going to create a few shockwaves, I think, because now they've introduced that into the canon, because that's where it is now, isn't it? That opens up some questions as to around uh, what he was doing in Empire Strikes Back with Princess Leia and all the snogging that went on. I'm not saying it was hot action or anything. One of the things I find interesting is, of course, is it's one of those pivotal moments, those fulcrum moments, where something quite small creates a huge ripple. I, for years, when I used to teach creative writing to level six students, to, to final year students, we'd teach a fantasy module. And when we would get to the subject of vampires and how you portray vampires in fiction, the issue of Twilight would come up and the Marmite reaction that <laughs> yes. Twilight causes... I sparkly vampires are. <laughs> and you, you realize, you know, you kind of have to sort of take a little bit of a step back and go, you realize you're arguing over two fictions. You are arguing over the fact that vampires shouldn't appear in daylight. Yeah, they shouldn't appear in daylight, shouldn't sparkle, which is one fiction that was derived from a tradition of stories over a period of time, but it's still a fiction because they're not real. I know, but it's the slippery slope argument, though, isn't it? It's where will this yeah. all end? No, I, I, I get it. And, you know, and I, I certainly was mm. big proponent of, and I've said this before, my love for Disney was not strong when uh, they were changing fairy tales and folk tales to give them happy endings. Mm. And I didn't like it. I wanted them to be, you know, true to the mythology, true to yeah, what I, I knew true. the mythology to be. Yeah, the instilling of fear into your children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it needs to have that moral murderous ending yeah. that tells you, yeah, the gingerbread man needs to be eaten. The little mermaid needs to die of a broken heart. <laughs> Hercules or Heracles needs to murder his children. That's right. I came from that view. But at the same time, I, I find it interesting as an observer to see the way in which we react, the way in which we cling on to the things that we know, because this disturbance in the force, perhaps, well, uh, because, it, <laughs> because it disturbs our, our memory, our continuity, our stability, our nostalgia that we have for, 
for the world that we remember. And Star Wars is totally nostalgia. You know, it it's, claims itself to be science fiction, but it's rooted in Spitfires and P-51s. Yeah. It is a whole nostalgia fest it is. in yeah. terms of the way in which it works. And, you know, and that's very clever and, and very, very fun. But um, I find it funny, you know, that, that there is is likely to be such an outcry. I I mean, what does it do for you? <laughs> it, just, it, it doesn't really bother me, in all fairness. <laughs> so I, I, I've got no sort of feelings either way on it, really. I find it interesting that they've done it, and I'd like to see how that develops, but I'm not going to get myself all neck-bearded up in rage. So... And they made the changes in relation to the Moss Eisley Cantina and Greedo being shot or shooting Han Solo. Yeah. Did that bother you? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually quite pleased that Jabba the Hutt was put in properly, you mm. know, as as the alien character, if you like, in the remaster or whatever it was that it happened in. And I think the way they did that was quite good. So I was quite pleased about that. I wasn't up in arms about any of that at all. I, th- I think that all added to it. Yeah, we can agree to disagree. Oh, I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hated the Greedo shot first thing. And mm. similarly, the addition of the Jabba scene, yeah. I think, was right for narrative continuity. I thought it was, was the right thing to do. Mm. But totally distracted by Han Solo being moved in a layer... <laughs> in the CGI to make it look like he trod on the yeah. <laughs> trod on his that, tail. That did look a little bit awkward. Because, of course, they didn't know what Jabba was going to look like at yeah. that point. Yeah. By comparison, what's interesting is, I don't know if you're aware, but in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, they didn't quite know what Gollum was going to look like when they shot Fellowship of the Ring. So when they shot the... Well, they shot all three films continuously, but when they shot the scenes in Fellowship of the Ring that had Gollum in, they hadn't finished all of the yeah. motion capture and stuff for Andy Serkis. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why the shots of him in the first film are a bit dark. But they obviously knew where they were going, so it was quite a nice way to cover it. Well, I guess it added to the mystery as well, because he didn't really make an appearance until Two Towers, yeah. did he? So, And I know this for certain, because I've just been watching it with the kids. You know, obviously, the film industry moves on. They knew they were going to shoot the other two films. They knew they had to have a technical solution for how that was going to work, and so on and so forth. Whereas with Star Wars, quite a lot made up on the hoof. Well, yeah. I th- the idea of what Jabba was going to look like probably wasn't finalised until they got into production on Return of the Jedi. Y- you, know. you get that impression, actually, that it was all a bit finger in the air. And I guess, you know, when technology moves on, then it's okay to change things, I think, because it's improving the product, or that was the intention anyway. Rewriting some yeah. of the story, introducing a <laughs> wife, is that the right thing to do? Is this a test? <laughs> to see what yeah, the reaction she, is maybe she gets killed off maybe it turns out she isn't his wife maybe she's some mad stalker maybe this is fatal attraction in Star Wars that's right yeah we'll leave things there uh, that'll be our discussion for now and we'll turn to our book choices so we'll be back with you just after this ad break greetings commanders second technician Fozzer Forrester here if you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST fly safe and if you can't do that Fly dangerous. Is your life like this? Is your life like this? Take that, evil pirate scum! Pew, 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 pew! Pew, 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 pew! Adventure, adventure. 
Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging. fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. Then John, so we've got your book choice first this week, your week back. What have you been reading Why you've been away? Yes, I've been reading a million copy bestseller. I have. Ooh, yes, wow. indeed. So it's The Atlantis Tune by A.G. Riddle, and you'll be pleased to know it is not a post-apocalyptic thriller. Hooray! There is not a zombie to be had. <laughs> it was a really enjoyable read. However, when I say it's got no zombies in it, I think it does have everything else. So it's got <laughs> pyramids, Nazis, aliens, or suggestion of aliens, the spear of destiny, genetics, male and female protagonists who eventually fall in love, and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So it's got pretty much everything else in, really. Okay. Apart from zombies. It's a pretty good page turner, really. Okay. And I believe it's self-published. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's, that's where it first started, anyway, and it is available on Amazon, obviously. And I guess one of those few where we've talked about self-published works really sort of hitting a, a note and sort of taking off and perhaps getting some traction. Yes. This would be one of those one of those writers that's managed to do that, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit of an about here. So the Atlantis Gene is a thought-provoking techno thriller about global genetic experiments ancient conspiracies and the mysteries of human evolution. Its complex characters and historical and scientific details will stay with you long after you've finished. This fast-paced adventure is the first book in A.G. Riddle's origin mystery series, now in development at CBS Films, to be a major motion picture. Well, there you go. Mm. So, done well, really. Yeah, yeah. not bad for a self-published novel in that regard. So, okay, so what specifically about the writing has grabbed you then? Well, first off, I took this away on holiday because I wanted to have a physical book on holiday to read on the beach. You know, there's yep. nothing like that feeling, I think. I've got an e-reader, obviously, and stuff like that, but I wanted to have an actual physical book, and this is what I got. So the story itself is fairly straightforward, and it's I'm not going to reveal all of the story, obviously, because it will spoil it. The pace of the book is perhaps a little bit too quick in parts. I had to reread the first couple of chapters to make sure I'd embedded all the characters correctly because there was an awful lot being thrown at you at the very beginning. So I had to go back and read those. But once I'd done that, I found that the narrative itself was really good. There was switching between viewpoints, which I found quite interesting, and it kept the book alive for me. The protagonists, um, there was the male and female lead. The male was a sort of typical 
hero type caught in a situation where he had to perform sort of thing. The female protagonist, she was a really good lead. You know, she was quite a strong female character, which I thought was mm-hmm. was really good. Both of them had a couple of flaws in the character, which were understandable flaws. So you kind of like liked them, which is what you do, isn't it, really? You give them a couple mm-hmm. of flaws. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was a little bit of flirting that went on between the characters, which was, you know, it just went on and off throughout the book. And um, I kept a little bit of a, not a love interest, because it was just a flirty thing going on, but it kept mm. a little bit of interest there. They could have been in or out, really, yeah. the flirting, I mean. Um, so <laughs> the other characters in the book were well made. There was um, some really villainous antagonists. And when the narrative switched to their perspective and you looked at the world through their eyes, you actually got to understand their motives better, which really did work. In fact, the whole switching between the characters' viewpoints worked really well and it was almost effortless. So I think the author did a really, really good job in that. There was a lot of action in it. And when it calls it a fast-paced adventure, it really is. It's, It's bam, 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 bam. But it's interesting fast. Once you up to that level you know you've upped your own gears in reading to keep pace with the book you're, you're fine then the book itself starts to go into a little bit of exposition well not a little bit of exposition a whole lot of exposition so you get told the background of what's going on and you get lots of plot tie-ins being explained and everything all done in the last third of the book it just seems that it was almost hastily done just to explain um. stuff off. That's the feeling I got. However, it didn't explain everything, and there were obviously bits left because it is part of a series, but it was good. So, in essence, it's all about a global conspiracy to create a, a super race, arguably, of humans, and to actually destroy 99.9% of the rest of them, to kind of like force an evolutionary leap. That's what it's about. Sure. But mm-hmm. uh, as to what actually happens, I'm not going to really say but you go you start off in jakarta you know and well you start off in antarctica really go to jakarta and there's lots of action around that area which i found quite interesting so i guess then the international scope kind of helps the sort of international thriller Mm. aspect of it when a writer does that well it feels like it's transporting you to lots of different places yeah i mean the author really did make i mean he let you just draw some of this yourself so so there were mentions of busy streets and your own vision of what jakarta busy streets would look like pops into your head you know yeah it's drawn from whatever film you've seen jakarta that's right yeah so, in, yeah. yeah so and then there's a little bit more where it describes a little bit of a shanty town or whatever and then of course you picture these shanty towns that i might have seen in a completely different country but it, it worked well it really did and you know you don't want to sit there and draw all the detail do you so you know well if, if the pace is the strength then he would have lost his pace exactly he? exactly and and to be fair i think the descriptive stuff was great the narrative was great the characters were good i think there were a couple of bits where i, found I had difficulty with with a couple of name changes which mm-hmm. happened for a reason but i do find that difficult to deal with personally in a book because yeah, yeah. i kind of like lose the link with the character then but uh that whole little bit of exposition at the end it kind of killed the pace for me a little bit on one hand they were all rushing around rushing around rushing around doing stuff and then uh, we'll just read this journal for a bit so you know yeah you know okay but it was good fair enough yeah is there a section you want to read yes now then what i can do is just read the part of the beginning 
actually, and that'll sure. give you a bit of a flavour, I guess. Carl Selig steadied himself on the ship's rail and peered through the binoculars at the massive iceberg. Another piece of ice crumbled and fell, revealing more of the long black object. It looked almost like a submarine, but it couldn't be. Hey, Steve, come check this out. Steve Cooper, Carl's grad school friend, tied off a buoy and joined Carl on the other side of the boat. He took the binoculars, scanned quickly, then stopped. Whoa, what is it? A sub? Maybe. What's under it? But basically, there's a, another object sticking, the sub sticking out of another object. It's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's sort of, yeah, I can see what you were saying about, uh, you know, the way in which it's written. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's the Atlantis gene. You can get it on Amazon. We've found it for 95p for the Kindle edition, 6 99 for the paperback. But there are options of used and new from 1.99 and 2.69 for new copies of the paperback, which I think is from an alternative seller. So what's interesting there, John, is that what we were talking about earlier about price points mm. on Amazon, that 95p price point, if that's a self-published book, that's at the 35% royalty rate right. for an author, as opposed to a higher rate. So the author has decided to price their book at that to get a, a wider audience, yeah. which I think would be interesting. And I'll just do a quick check because we also have the Atlantis Plague, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is the next one. And they, they're all titled Million Copy Bestseller, aren't they? Yeah. So that one is also at 99p. And then the third one is at 379. So he's obviously got a strategy yeah. in terms of how he's going to sort of get you into the story. So that's, you know, that's perfectly it's acceptable. It's a valid way, strategy, isn't it? So Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a good book, I think. I really enjoyed it. And I would recommend it to any of my friends to give that, you know, give it a read. It's, it was, you know, it's not bad. You know, right. it's, it's, a, it's an enjoyable book. Certainly more than 95p's worth of pleasure. Mm, definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so after the break, we'll be back uh, with my book choice. Your ship is a miracle of engineering. Capable of handling the most intense situations. But with no sound in a vacuum, how do you keep up with your ship? Introducing Simulated Sound, where your ship recreates the sound of battle so no vital signal is lost to the vacuum. But wait! Why be stuck with the sounds of death and destruction? We offer alternative sound effects for all encounters. Activating cargo dump. Change the sound of battle with our choice of audio packs. Why not feel sexy in battle? Installing sound pack. <laughs> or go for a cute farmyard scene. <laughs> or even our classy stress reliever. Impact in five, four, three, two, one. New Stroudbury Sound Packs, changing the sound of battle. In system travel, sometimes it takes so long. I have tools for all kinds of circumstances on my ship. But the one thing I don't have a tool for is uneven tan lines. 
I just want to look like a million credits. But when you're living for days on a ship with processed and filtered air, it really dries out your skin. I use better hope golden ink tan cream. It just boosts your confidence. I don't believe that beauty is only skin deep, but now I really do look like a million credits. Even my friends mistook me for a genuine gold skin. Jameson and Jameson. Upgrades and services for your body. And we're back. So, turning to my book choice this week, John, I'm afraid you've decided not to go for dystopia <laughs> and post-apocalyptic. Yes. And so, guess what I've gone for? You've gone for that. Yeah, I've gone for a dystopian <laughs> post-apocalyptic set of novels. There's a, a specific story around this. Mm. I picked up a set of books to review for Concatenation, who we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, who were looking for reviewers. So I, I picked up you know, a few books to review. Yeah. And one of the books that was on their list was Tamaruk by E.J. Swift. Okay. That is the book I picked up. That's the book we're going to look at. Now, Tamaruk is the third book in the Osiris Project trilogy written by E.J. Swift. I've not read the first two, hmm. so I'm reading the third one. And what's interesting about doing that is that certainly you get a little bit of an appreciation for whether the book can stand on its own. I certainly remember I've read two or three trilogies in the past where I've read the third book first, and that's intrigued me to go and read the others. And specifically, I was drawn to E.J. Swift's book because I taught Emma's sister, Emma's sister Kim did her her degree at Buxton University, and I taught her fantasy. So um, I I didn't teach Emma. Emma then signed for some stuff with Angry Robot, and then this has obviously has come out of Delray. So I don't know whether this is the thing that she got signed for. I expect this is something a bit further on. But this is her trilogy. So it was immediately when I saw her name on the list, I was, oh, yeah, I'm keen to review something that's written by my ex-student sister. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll be really interesting. But at the same time, to then realise ah, it's the third one in a trilogy, well, I wonder if it holds up. And you know what? It kind of does. Wow. Now, there are some issues with reading the third book. There are themes in the third book that quite clearly it's sort of a story partway through. You know, you rejoin a character. So she's tying up a lot of ends that she's established in the first two. So you've got one main theme going on about Osiris, which is this lost city in this world, this far future world, sort of two, three hundred years from now, where they've been ravaged by a, a disease called Red Fleur, which is kind of like flu, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the French, the French Fleur, and it's all as one word. That disease they can't cure, but they could kind of vaccinate, but it keeps mutating and they're trying to, to get a cure for it. But this Osiris city has been shut away from the rest of the world. And in fact, I expect that in the previous book, certainly in the first book, that they didn't actually know there was a rest of the world, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It was so shut away. I expect the first book was probably all set on this city, which is built on the sea. It's not actually a, a land. You know, it's it's built completely um, as a platform, sort of like a big, I guess, a mining rig, but, you know, much, much bigger. Mm. And it's got sort of towers and everything else. But the interesting thing is that the third book is obviously is drawing these different themes towards the end. So you do get some of them are part way through. Some of them are very politically charged and, you know, and, and right in the center of things. 
and you follow the story of Adelaide and you get the sense Adelaide has, has really struggled through the previous books. But from her starting point in this book to her ending point in this book, it's actually a really good personal story, which you don't feel like you've missed out. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But you are interested in reading what came before. Oh, very good. The text itself, I found hard to start with. And there's a reason for that. It's present tense. Okay. So it's not written in past, it's written in present. I struggle with present tense writing because it makes me lose my sense of being able to write in past tense. When I read somebody who's written in present tense, I kind of then go and try and write and I can't, my tense starts to get confused. Okay, I, yes. I, kind of, I kind of have to spend a week away. And so it, <laughs> it's, it's been difficult because I'm writing on a couple of projects at the moment. So it's been tricky to kind of, no, no, that's present tense. So yeah, so I mean, that's no excuse, you know, so, but everything is says rather than said. Mm -hmm. And it flips around in terms of perspectives, fairly long chapters, but broken down into scenes. And it follows these different characters towards this conclusion. She knits it towards this ending, quite disparate in the middle. There are one or two places where I kind of, I was concerned that maybe the perspective wasn't sitting in the character do you know what i mean where i seem to be head hopping in a scene mm. i can't put my finger on exactly where yes. but i saw one or two places where i i you lose track of who your, your your viewpoint or, is or i i seem to just know a little bit too much about what someone else was thinking i see yeah but you know that could be me it could be me reading when i was tired so you yeah. know i i don't know but it's it's certainly really really interesting book different take on the post-apocalyptic idea and very diffuse you know you have these new cultures that have been established you've got the boreals you've got the patagonians you've got the antarcticans so you know the temperature of the world the the different habitable regions of the world have completely changed yes which i think is interesting hmm. so i'll give you the blurb shall oh, i please, yes. yeah. Fleeing from her family and the elitist oppression of the Osiris government, Adelaide Reknoff has become the thing she once feared, a revolutionary. But with the discovery of a radio signal comes the stark realisation that there is life outside their small island existence. Adelaide's worries are about to become much bigger. Meanwhile, as rumour spreads on the mainland, many head to the lost city of Osiris with their own devious objectives. But in a world where war is king and only the most powerful survive, there can only be one victor. I don't think that sells it very well. No, it doesn't sound that, like what you've just spoken about. No, that kind of that blurb really sounds like thriller number six. <laughs> right. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? It, it really sounds like default thriller number six. Actually, the book's a lot better than that. Yeah. There's some good characters, particularly the Alaskan, who is this wheelchair-bound former negotiator. She was used to be a diplomatic and trade negotiator many years ago when the world still made sense. And she's she's in a wheelchair. People hate her, but they're terrified of her. Mm. And, you know, that's a really interesting. I, I find her as a character very interesting. And then one or two other scenes where she comes up with particularly arduous circumstances people trafficking on a boat where one person's let out of a crate and over a period of time finds a way to free people but not in the way that is kind of a, a swashbuckling rescue it's a harrowing ordeal because they've got to wait for their moment so you know when you discover that all these people you're going to free are all locked up in this place and you have to lock them back in for a bit longer mm. you know those kind of things it's very very carefully drawn and i think as i say i think the um I think the blurb undersells it. 
Yeah. Right then. So uh, you can get this on Amazon, I take it? Yes, you can get the whole trilogy on Amazon. Now, you can get it uh, Osiris. The Osiris Project is book one, which is available for eight ninety nine. That would be the paperback edition. The Kindle edition is $4.35. Audio download is £21. And obviously there's used and new options. Catavero, which is book two, is available. Again, paperback is $8.99. The Kindle edition $6.49. Uh, there is an amazing hardcover from £999.11. We'll have two. <laughs> <laughs> I believe there's only one available. Ah. But uh, yeah, that's it's very interesting. And uh, then Tamaruk, which is the, the third of the trilogy. Kindle at 6 49 paperback at 7 19 mm. um, And then there are obviously used and new options from there. But uh, yeah, certainly a, a great read. I mean, I would have I would have picked it up anyway for the fact that it's supporting a young writer it's somebody that I don't know directly, but it's somebody that I do know, uh, you know, one generation removed, as it were. So, so yeah, and she's obviously has a very, very clear and distinct style because of this present tense way in which it's done. You know, it really does say to you, this is me. You know, this is what I'm writing. And certainly meticulous in terms of the way in which it's constructed. Very interesting. Mm, very good. So uh, you enjoyed it then? Yeah, I did. I've just got another 20 pages to do for the end, so I'm hoping we're going to finish the episode quickly so and I can get would, finished. Yeah, I'm sure we will. <laughs> um, so would you buy the others? I already have. Right, okay. So I've already picked the other two up. Fascinated me to find out the lead-up to these events. Whether I get through them before I do the concatenation review, we'll have to see, but I'll do my best. So yeah, so no, I've picked up the other two to see how it builds outwards. Mm. I have a feeling that what she's done, which I think is quite clever and quite a nice idea, is to sort of build the perspective, if you see what I mean. To start, I have a feeling that the first book is probably quite claustrophobic. All right. And then it gradually builds into this very geopolitical perspective, this future yeah. geopolitics, yeah. which I think, I think is very interesting. I think that's probably the right choice. Mm, very good. So have you got uh, a section of this you want to read then? Yeah, I can do. Let's go from the start because you don't want to give too much away. Mm. They pulled her out of the water and took her away from the place where he died. She was half drowned, salt water swelling in her lungs, howling and delirious. One of them gripped her beneath the ribcage and pushed upwards until she vomited all the liquid and could only retch, twitching in the stern of the boat like some strange sea creature they had dredged up from the deep. All around them the derelict west was on fire. The ocean gleamed red with the reflection of flames, and the pitted towers were outlined in stark relief against the night. Scardy boats weaved ribbons across the surface. One of the two could hear sirens and human screams, tormented sounds issuing from the water and from behind the fire, and the other watched the flames and sensed the burn of heat on skin. Now, that's the first paragraph, and you can see immediately there's a couple of things I'd pick out there. To start with, it's starting in past tense, yep. and then it moves into present, so it will shift, which is... Obviously, that might have been why it, it felt a bit jarring to me, because it's shifting through. Also in that paragraph, note that last line. Yeah. If we are in the perspective of this person, we then, in that last line, we hear about what one of these two people who's got hold of her can hear and what the other one is looking at and sensing. Yes. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So this is where you're not getting that very close viewpoints that you would usually expect to have. You're actually getting quite a dislocated viewpoint. Mm. It's almost like a film perspective 
often, you know, writers do that at the start of books. I've got a piece I did very recently where I sort of started wide, started in space, and then in the first few paragraphs, you then get into the character. Do you see what I mean? So you sort of set the scene and then, like EastEnders and, you know, seeing the map of London and down to the street. So sometimes you do that. But this quite clearly is sort of using that sort of third person viewpoint, that outside viewpoint to sort of watch just occasionally. It does jar. I think she knows she's doing it, but it does unsettle because you're not used to it. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine I know that I've got difficulty with that. And I I do find the concentration wavers slightly. I'll probably be able to read it fine, in all fairness. But um, yeah, I I do know what you mean. It's unusual. Mm. And since films have come along, films have allowed us to tell stories. And television allows us to tell stories with that invisible viewpoint. So you can have a camera that sort of sits there and lets you observe what's going on. Films can do that. Television can do that better than books can do it because you can see it all. And you're judging from that neutral standpoint. You're not getting to know what the emotions of characters are apart from what you read off them. So essentially it is a very neutral standpoint. Whereas books give you the opportunity to sit inside someone's head and observe everybody else and feel and know who that person is that you're in the head of. So, you know, we've seen that evolution in novel writing towards a closer perspective, probably because film and television has taken up that more neutral perspective. So it's why it feels a bit unfamiliar to us to go back to something that isn't in one head. Do you see what I mean? Yes, yes, do. So yeah, so so certainly this, you know, it's unusual. It's certainly I wouldn't write like that. <laughs> but, you know, she's. I think she's doing it intentionally. Okay, brilliant. All right then, so that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at laveradio.com, Facebook slash laveradio, at laveradio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding FOSA101 to your Skype contacts. You can also join the TeamSpeak server where commanders come to hang out and chat. That's laveradio.teamspeak3.com. And also, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about publishing, the publishing industry, where you would take your manuscript, what the best thing to do, etc., etc., we've talked a little bit about it this week. We're planning that we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. So particularly if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask us, do feel free to, to drop us a line at, at info at laveradio.com or just to post a comment on the discussion on laveradio.com beneath the episode. We'll happily take those on board and answer them as well. Very, very happy to communicate more of my experience and maybe a few do's and don'ts about that whole world of getting your work out there. And so welcome back, John. (laughs) Yeah, cheers. It is great to have you on. I missed you. Oh, bless you. Bless you. I did. I did. I missed you. Those other guests I had, they they were good, but not as they good. Weren't you, <laughs> they weren't you, John. So it is great to have you back and have your reading recommendations along with mine. Hopefully, folks, you can go out there, pick up the book that you want to see. So uh, until next time. So until next time, keep hauling that Lavian brandy. Take care, commanders. Bye. 